Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. This morning we are going to read from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. It's a lot of red in here, a lot of red words, so pay attention closely. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this is a passage of scripture that's called the sermon. We refer to as the, the Sermon on the Mount. And it is, it is a collection of chapter, chapters that holds some of the most uh, well-known. It's like the greatest hits of things that Jesus said. We read a section of it, the introduction, called the Beatitudes. But he'll go on from here, and we'll consider it in a moment, to say some things that are probably familiar to many of you. But I just kind of wanted to set the stage, one, for why we're going to approach it this way, and then two, for sort of how we hear um, what Clint read for us, and then also sort of the the, the sermon as a whole. So if you were to leave this morning and it's maybe unfamiliar to you or, you you know, it's been a minute, it's Matthew's chapter, uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and and seven, we get the Lord's Prayer in there, uh, right in the heart of it. We get some other sort of, uh, again, really famous... um, uh, sayings of Jesus, but uh, a, a couple of things. The first is this, that as Matthew tells the story of Jesus, we're, we're looking at Matthew's portrait of Jesus, and in his telling of the story of Jesus, he kind of structures the story in a way that moves us back and forth between uh, uh, the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus, and then uh, and sort of that rhythm is a flow, and there's sort of five, you know, as people try to give a framework or, you know, like, let's, how's it structured? Think about all these kinds of things. And uh, there's like five sort of major passages of, of sayings, like discourses, the churchy sort of historian, uh, biblical scholars would use in Matthew's gospel. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of them. And we have preached through this particular section in more detail at an earlier point in our church's history. So this go around, we're going to hold it all together, and then we're going to move forward into the next sort of uh, narrative bit of Matthew's gospel. And then as we move through the narrative, we'll come to the next discourse, and we're going to hit a couple of them uh, going forward. But so just to explain why we're handling it this way, we've moved slowly through this uh, sermon, for lack of a better word, in Matthew's gospel before. So today we're going to kind of hold the whole thing together and try to think about it in its entirety, in its context, and hear it this way. And then next week, we'll pick back up with sort of the narrative story as Jesus is back to his deeds, his works, uh, before he steps into another uh, collection of uh, a sermon, right? Chapters, a section on uh, his message. And so uh, heard in this way, Okay, so we kind of hold it in this way. We'll see. Uh, we're going to move out of this next week and into the narrative of chapter 8. But this week, we, we, we take this Sermon on the Mount that is, again, a kind of greatest hits. Uh, it feels like, right, all the chart toppers. And so we're just going to make some uh, um, 
general observations about the passage. It's a deeply significant uh, portion of scripture that has had a sort of deep impact and effect uh, in culture of the world uh, over. Uh, but where we start this morning, if you're going to jot things down, I'm just going to tell you, we're going to m- make three considerations. One is sort of how incredible it is. Uh, one is sort of how maybe not incredible it is. All right. And then we're going to finish with like, well, what, what does, what do either of those things mean sort of in my life for, for me? So we start with sort of the, the understanding that this passage of scripture is a glorious uh, collection of scripture. It is a glorious word. I mean, um, just incredible in its scope. And sort of the comprehensive um, way in which it it opens up and examines the human life, and specifically what that life should and could look like in relationship to the God, our Father in heaven, who created it. Um, it's this just incredibly sort of broad and yet at the same time deep dive uh, into uh, the human life before God, specifically. As we've seen in the story of Jesus, the human life, we've just come out of a moment where he's called his first disciples. He's, he's, he's worked the goodness of, of uh, his power, the kingdom of God, in the lives of those who are sick and broken. And out of that, he steps away now and gives us a picture. Well, this is what it might look like for those who follow me. And, and we'll, again, uh, I'll just give you, you could highlight any number of things from the passage, but some things to think about. There's the, the bit in here where he says that my disciples are salt and light, right? An image that we've probably heard before, salt and light, that, that my disciples are like, uh, at that day, like preservers in the world, in the spaces, which we see this in early church history and all throughout, in the moments and seasons and spaces of, of the world where things are broken and most damaged, my disciples don't run away from them. They go into them as a preserving force of good and life in a world that is marred and broken with sin, right? Salt and light, we see Jesus uh, dive deep into how we relate to other people, right? He says, uh, this is the bit where we get Jesus saying things like, you know, don't murder, obviously, but if you're even angry at someone, you're, you're already there, right? He, he, he unpacks immediately in this early in this sermon that uh, what he does, right, what he does in that move is every personal incl- encounter, is infused with with implications um, that God has created the people involved, right? What, what, what he does in that moment, we read it, we think, oh my goodness, this is incredible, right? Who could ever, right? You're telling me if I'm even angry, but the implication is that everyone involved in that interaction is somehow touched uh, uh, by the God that created them, and that warrants a change in how we respond, Regardless of class, race, moral character, the list goes on. None of those things matter in a sense. How I respond to that person, even in anger, has implications because of the fact that God has created them and me. He'll go on to talk about not just how we relate to the world as salt and to each other, like anger and other examples as the sermon will go on. He'll talk about integrity, sort of a wholeness of body and mind. And in this section, he'll talk about things like sexuality, and, and he'll talk about lust, and he'll talk about speech, which is weird to hold these three things together. Like, how do they correlate what holds them together? And in each instance, there's this move towards wholeness, 
right? In, in terms of lust, don't do something with your body that you can't fulfill with your whole self. And there are consequently implications for how we relate to one another, implications for marriage, implications for um, intimacy and relationships. All of those things, Jesus says, are affected by the fact that both parties involved are created by God. My disciples, people who follow me, will see that interaction differently. But not just uh, there, it says even in your speech, like how you talk and the things that you say, the way in which you speak truth will be altered and affected. He'll go on. Again, we're just, this is a sort of quick, like we're just dipping in and out briefly, but just kind of get a sense for the scope. He'll not only talk about sort of the wholeness, body, mind, all of those things, he'll, he'll move on and talk about how we respond to hostility. Right in the passage, he'll say this. This is where we get like uh, one of the places we get love your enemies, love your enemies when you're rejected or persecuted. In their context, sort of the Roman uh, presence in their life, he'll say if they force you to go one mile, you go another. You, you you know if they take your cloak, you give them sort of the next bit as well. Right there's this strange move towards how we respond towards hostility that cuts just as deep as all the other things he's mentioned. He'll talk in chapter 6 about how we respond to the poor, that we're supposed to give generously and give in a way that is unself-conscious. Right? He'll say give and don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Right? We, uh, we don't give because of how, like, how it makes you feel or all those kinds of things. Give unself-consciously. And then he'll turn and this beautiful section that gives us the Lord's Prayer where he talks about fasting and praying and what it means to ask God for what you need. In this beautiful section, he'll talk about sort of the heart and the interior life and that its, it's condition, its true condition is revealed in the solitude of those moments. That in the sort of quietness of the times that you are alone, where does the heart and mind go? It's an invitation to let it turn to God, but it's an accusation that so often it turns to so many other things. He'll talk about money again. Interestingly, the heart's condition in, in, in the relationship to the things we possess in the context of like anxiety, right? The material things in our life. Where is our security? Where do we find? It's, this will get beautiful passages here where he talks about the lilies and the flowers and says those things don't worry about those things. Your father in heaven cares for them and he cares for you. This beautiful image of God's providential care in our lives, even as we've sung about it this morning attitude towards circumstances. Chapter 7, our attitude towards people who have wronged us. The passages that are probably familiar that we like to throw around. Uh, things like, you know, don't judge. Take the speck out of your own eye before you go chasing after sort of what you see to be wrong in other people's eyes. It's all about an attitude of response to the people that and uh, that sense are wrong. And Jesus says all of this is affected. So all these things in this sermon, all of this is affected uh, by who we are in relationship to him. Again, this has been just a sort of brief consideration, but it is a comprehensive portrait. It is huge in its scope. One author has described it as the unconditional expression of God's will and the chart, the chart of character for disciples. The charter, charter of character for disciples. The disciples. This is the manifesto of what it would mean to 
be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to be the human God created you to be in the world. It's just incredible. It's so incredible. It's been picked up and used in all kinds of ways. We like to use it as like a personal ethic, be like this. It's been used as a political charter to shape sort of uh, or, or held to believe that this ought to shape how governments operate, the way we respond to those in need, all those kinds of things. It's so broad in its scope, wielded for all kinds of purposes. In, his, um, in writing about, I think his, the author's name was Dixon, and he's writing about sort of the bullies and saints in church history, sort of moments when the church lived up to its reputation or its calling, rather, and moments when it lived down. We've referenced his work before, but in, in his sort of reflecting, he picks up this sermon as like this is the Sermon on the Mount is like the refrain. It's, 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 the, it's the melody that the Christian life returns to again and again and again. And he, he cites a couple of examples that I think are worth noting. This is so beautiful, he says. Uh, Einstein says of the sayings of Jesus that they were, beautiful. And then, and then uh, Dawkins, who was opposed to the life of faith in Christ, for sure, religion, even described this sort of language from Jesus, this moment as beautiful and way ahead of its time, right? The recognition that there is clearly something glorious in these words. And we have tried and probably failed to make that. I have tried. You haven't. You haven't failed at anything or tried, right? You have just been waiting for me to move on to the next point. Uh, but I have tried to convey in some sense that these words of Jesus are among his most glorious for all kinds of reasons. But, but I think there's a second observation to consider this morning, which is not, not that just that they are glorious, but I think our reaction to them is often that these words are probably glorious for everyone else more than they are for me. Probably glorious for everyone else more than they are for me. In in this sense, right, when we read this list of things, my hunch is a human response to this is like, man, this sounds great for everybody else, right? But uh, do not hold me to this standard, please, right? Like, I, I will happily hold you, each of you, to this standard. But please do not uh, place this requirement upon me. Back to uh, uh, John Dixon, his work uh, in Bullies and Saints. He describes how unique this word from Jesus was in its sort of broader context. He says, you know, all the moral codes of like how to live from, from that time and other times in and around Jesus. You had like Proverbs from Egypt, the Code of Amurabi. You had Plato and Aristotle and their ethics and the, the maxims of Delphi, right? Now, all these beautiful things, the philosophers, Seneca, Epictetus, Plutarch, right? They, 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 they write all about what it means to live sort of the, 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 the purest, the perfect life. And love does not feature in the same way as it does here. Right? What features there are things like justice and courage and wisdom and moderation. The four cardinal virtues of the, of the Western sort of antiquity, these four uh, principles, but hardly mentioned are things like love and mercy and humility and non-retaliation, which feature so prominently in the writings of Jesus. It's because, man, I, I, can, lean into, I can lean into courage and justice and love and wisdom all day, but, but try to put humility and uh, self-sacrifice on me, and it's a different reaction. It's a different feeling. This is good news for sure, 
Alpha for you, <laughs> right? Don't put this on me. Uh, Tim Keller, preacher, theologian, writer, uh, uses a word to describe this point about this sermon. He he says he calls he says this. It's glorious, yes, but it's a, a terror. When we just hear it for what it is, it's a terror because obedience in this passage is obligatory. The stakes are enormous. The calling is remarkably high, right? Anger and murder are laid alongside one another, right? That's insane is the feeling that the human heart has in response to that. Lust and sexual immorality equally sort of paired, right? Like obedience is obligatory. The stakes are high. Neither Matthew nor Jesus in giving us this moment seem overly concerned with how practical or impractical it would be for the human heart to achieve any of these things. That doesn't seem to be their concern. There are no loopholes around it here. Like this is it. And even the concluding images of the sermon are ones we sing as children. Like the wise man built his house upon the rock. Yeah, I tricked you there because I should have started with the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, right? If you grew up around church, these are, you know, it's like, oh, that's just like such a happy scene song. You Thing, but then heard in the context of this message, which is where he finishes, it, it lands a little heavier and a little more um, apocalyptically, if you, if you will. These concluding images, the stakes are, are high. It, it feels like a terror <laughs> because we know, you know, in the moments of sort of genuine honesty in your life, how hard and how out of reach it is. I think we approach the Sermon on the Mount in all kinds of ways, It's beautiful, love, it's revolutionary, it's an ethical blueprint for life, it's all these things, but when we just hear it like this, I think it lands maybe a little differently. It's glorious, but for everyone else, please, maybe, let's just choose the ones that, like, you want to apply to me. Uh, this is an article that kind of made the rounds, and you'll bump into it at different places. Uh, her work, she was a professor, I think it was Texas A&M, English and a lit professor. She assigned the Sermon on the Mount to her, uh, her name was Virginia Stern Owens. You can find her, her article, but uh, her article is called uh, uh, Why I Hate the Sermon on the Mount. And she assigned it to her freshman English class uh, as a, an example of rhetoric from their textbook, the King James Version. And she's like, I had expected, she says, you know, I'm in Texas, I kind of sort of, this is the demographic of my students, this is the response I expected, and she was a bit surprised. She got reactions like, I didn't like this essay, The Sermon on the Mount, it was hard to read, made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another was said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd, that to lust is adultery, that's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. This was the real thing, she goes on to say about these reactions. Those were two examples. She says, this was the real thing. It was kind of a pristine response to the gospel. It's scandalizing, a terror. These responses of these students was unfiltered through sort of all the sort of cultural, you know, haze of the lives they lived. It was just an honest reaction to these direct words from Jesus. And heard in this way, it was heard as a terror. You know, Jesus will say at the end of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect. Your heavenly father is perfect. As I frequently do, moments like this that make me uncomfortable with scripture, I I think about Bluey. If you're unfamiliar with Bluey, you should get familiar with Bluey. 
children's cartoon, Australian, what are the dogs? Someone help me out here. Blue Healers, yes. They have fun accents. They sing a great song. You know, da, 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 da. It's just great fun. Sometimes a little moralistic and preachy, but hey, that's okay. We get through it, right? Like, we get through it. But uh, recently, you know, my kids are, you know, we, we, we still watch it, and I think a lot of it is because I, I want to watch it. They're like, you know, can we watch something else? But um, it's just that good. You should watch it. Um, uh, you should, it's okay. You don't have to, but uh, I'll tell you about this one. They just recent, recently, uh, I don't know if it was recent or not, but I recently uh, took one in, and the title of the episode was Perfect. And uh, the mom uh, sits down with Bingo and Bluey, uh, two sisters, Bingo the older, uh, uh, sorry, Bingo the younger, Bluey the older, and they sit down, and they're going to make Father's Day cards for their dad. And uh, Bluey uh, is like, I'm going to make the perfect card, right? I would try to replicate the accent, but I can't do that. And her mom says, well, you know, you know, uh, Bingo, perfect is, sorry, Bluey, perfect is tough, Bluey. I'm just warning you. So you can imagine where the episode goes from there if you haven't seen it already, right? Like, Bluey tries to draw one thing, and then they like it for a moment. It's like, well, this isn't right. Wad it up, throw it away. Tries to draw something else. Tries to draw something else. But in in the front end of that interaction, um, Bluey, I think, it's Bluey says, what does perfect even mean? And Bluey's little sister, Bingo, says, I know. It means really, 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 really good, right? Interesting response. Uh, And I think one that I hear when I read a passage like this. I mean, I don't think we have space enough for the reallys that need to be sort of included in this description of what Jesus has given us, of what it means to be really good, of the heart and life that is so good it can love its enemies, that is so good it can Look at the person across from it and be free and empty of anger or lust or uh, judgment or self-righteousness. I think we know that it takes a lot of release to get to a heart that good. Interestingly, this is a spoiler alert, so if you were going to watch it, I'm sorry. You get to the end of the episode and there's a moment of revelation. Right, uh, her mom goes and sits. I think Chili is her name. Goes and sits down next to Bluey. Bluey has removed herself from the table, as you know, a child or an adult will do in a moment of this kind of feeling, and and is sitting there. And Chili comes and sits alongside. And I'm like, what's wrong, Bluey? And then we have a flashback, a flashback through scenes that we weren't a part of earlier in the episode. And it turns out there had been a moment where Bluey and Bingo had drawn a picture, or rather, Bingo had drawn a picture. You guys are like, I, I don't even know who who is what, Bluey. Bingo, you're getting the names all confused. I know, I'm sorry. But her little sister had drawn a picture and her mom had taken it. Oh, this is perfect, she said. And she put it up on a fridge that was overcrowded. And so she said, just for right now, we'll cover up Bluey's picture. And it had left a a wound, which occurred to me. uh, Also, this is how we often respond to words like this from Jesus. Like, I know these words are out of reach, but here's one thing I can do. I can make it about comparison. And I know I'm not as unrighteous as that guy. Maybe I'm not quite as righteous as that woman, but I know I'm better than this. And in that moment, I'm given a reprieve from the terror that is the Sermon on the Mount. And I think Bluey helps me hear it a little more clearly this morning. That whether I just hear it for myself or wield it against Others, the human heart's response to this message from Jesus is often filled with trouble. 
which raises the question, right? If it's glorious, but also a little frightening, how then is it good news for me and for you? You guys have waited so patiently for me to get to this, my longest point in the sermon. That's, that's a joke. Um, I'm going to wrap it up here, which I remember now. I was, you're never supposed to say that, but I've said it. So here we, here we go. How is this good news? And, 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 and in this moment, I take us back to what Clint read for us earlier, the Beatitudes, the introduction to this incredible portrait of the life of discipleship. It's here, I think, that we are brought back into this description. Jesus says, he describes the kind of person you have to be in order to uh, do the kinds of things that, that follow. That before you ever get to all the doing that will follow in this sermon, Jesus paints this picture of the kind of person that knows the blessing, the goodness, the nearness of God, the poor in spirit who are empty who are done holding up any merits they bring themselves. They're bankrupt, utterly bankrupt. I know I have nothing in my best or my worst. The mourner who is repentant for that uh, emptiness we bring. The meek who relies on the strength of another in this moment. The hungry and the thirsty for righteousness. And in this portrait, I would suggest to you this morning that in fact what we find in this moment of despair, how are we supposed to respond to such a high standard? I suggest to you that we find a description of Jesus, that he, in fact, is the, the hero of this sermon, the central figure and character. He became poor and mourned and walked as meek and thirsty. He uh, walked in this way so that you and I could know mercy and be filled and experience joy and have peace. And in fact, the rest of the sermon, not just the Beatitudes, but the rest of the sermon points us to Jesus, Jesus who will love his enemies all the way to the cross. Jesus, who will go where the Roman soldier forces him to go and further. Jesus, who will turn the other cheek, which he says in this sermon. Jesus, who will be a city on a hill in that moment, a light in a very dark and broken, and rather than running away from it, will lay his life down in the middle of it. And in this moment, I suggest to you that we hear the good news of the sermon on the mount. That It's good news for us. Because it's a reminder that we only become the kind of person this sermon describes because he has become that kind of person for us. There's glory here, yes. There's terror here, undoubtedly. But there is also hope. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, there's, there's hope in this sermon. He, as Kristen reminded us earlier, is the author and finisher of our faith. It's not our faith. It's not uh, sort of what we muster up in the moment, but it's the, the person on whom that faith rests, which I don't know this morning what your experience of the life of discipleship, the invitation of the church to trust and follow Jesus has been like, but I would hope you could hear this attempt at a summary, perhaps with a bit of grace this morning. 
I would imagine all of us are in here, different stages of life, different experiences, different pressures, but all knowing the feeling of demand, both secularly and sacred. What does it mean to be a good grandparent? What does it mean to sort of live successfully retired? What does it mean to grow in my vocation? What does it mean to have a family or to have a relationship? What does it mean for me to sort of be successful in my spheres of life and my friendships and my work and my security? What all oh, the demands of all of those spaces we hear, and that's just sort of the physical ones. What about the spiritual ones? What does it mean for me to be good? Really, really good. I wonder if in the midst of all that, how you hear all of those pressures in your life. We respond probably a few different ways. I think sometimes we look for loopholes. Maybe we play a bit of comparative righteousness. Well, at least I'm not as bad as. And in those moments, we try to feel a little bit better about ourselves. But I think Jesus just refuses to relent and reminds you and me this morning that we only begin to meet the requirements of life that this sermon has laid on us when we ultimately despair of our ability to ever do it. That Jesus says to anyone here sort of living in the wreck of this sermon, maybe you have brought guilt or anxiety or uncertainty uh, in your life into this moment, Jesus' words to you are hopeful words that in the midst of yours and mine, our helplessness and our hopelessness before this sort of overwhelming expectation and demand, that in the midst of that, when we finally give up and admit we bring nothing here in our best or our worst, we finally have the space for God's grace to flood our hearts and lives and set us free. I don't know where you are in relationship to a word like this. Maybe you're like, yeah, Bluey sounds fun. I'll check it out. (laughs) But I want to tell you this morning, Yes, the demand is a glorious word, and yes, the demand is higher than you could ever possibly know, and yet in that word is an invitation to you and me to surrender to, as we'll sing now in this moment, bless God when my hands are empty, because that is all of us, but incredibly, it's also him. Jesus emptied himself so that you and I could know the life and hope of a good heart that comes from him more than any righteous work you do. Will you guys stand with me? We're going to close with a song and then Clint will come and dismiss us with a benediction. I just want to ask you to join me in prayer as the musicians come and and, uh, get ready. Jesus, we sang a moment or two ago about um, the darkness that at times seems to cloud or hide your face from us. And uh, I hear the Sermon on the Mount, and it strikes me that uh, the brightness of your countenance is sometimes too much for us to take. That were we to see you in all of your goodness as it's laid out before us here, would just be a reminder, Jesus, of how far from it I am. And maybe there are others in this room that know that feeling or have carried it into this space this morning. Jesus, in your grace, would you divert our attention from ourselves and center our hearts and minds on you?
that you are the hope of this word. You are the one who works goodness. You are the only one who is good, and you work it in our hearts and lives. We bring empty hands to this place where we are clutching our own righteous deeds. Jesus, would you set us free from the weight and pressure of trying to be enough, where we have come dejected, feeling that we will never be enough to warrant your attention or affection. Jesus, would you meet us with the word of grace that goodness is yours. And as we look at you, Father, that is where life happens. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.